today. Are we ready? Okay, we're going to try it. Hello, St. Andrews. It's Saturday night. We've just finished Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and now tonight's meetings. We have two services in the morning, just like uh, St. Andrews, uh, and then we get to go home. So we've had a wonderful time, and the Holy Spirit has been powerfully. Of course, we're still recovering. I'm still recovering from Africa. Uh, give Ken, who uh, was a great travel companion, an extra hug. Uh, we went through a lot of things that are so ridiculous, it's hard to believe they actually happened. You've heard some of them. I'm sure I'll give you my version uh, when I get home. Uh, while you're praying and having your services, we're having the service here, I'm praying for you tonight. I'll be praying early in the morning. Uh, we're so grateful for you. And uh, you know the thing that keeps coming to mind is there's no place like home. There's no place like home. So anyway, we've had a wonderful time here. And uh, we're kind of trained because the Lord's moved so powerfully. It's been a long time since we've seen him move this powerfully. And of course, that's super exciting. Uh, but more than anything, we want to be home and we want uh, to see what the Lord's going to do there. And I feel like a real fresh season's opened up somehow in Africa and here. Uh, and that's really exciting. So love you so much. Susie's my camera woman. Uh, she misses you. I miss you. And uh, look to see you next Sunday. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye. All right. Um, of course, we're quite fortunate to have uh, Bishop Ron and Susie, and uh, the Lord is using them in, in great and mighty ways. Let's bow our heads and pray for Bishop Ron and Susie as they are away. Father, uh, we know that uh, through the trip to Chad and now to Bogota that um, uh, Bishop Ron is weak and he uh, in strength and you have uh, used him in a great and a mighty way. I pray that uh, this morning and today that you will uh, give him strength that he needs, uh, that he'll also find rest that he needs before he returns home. But as they travel this week, as they come back to us, uh, we pray that your hand will be, a protection will be over them and on them. And we're thankful that uh, uh, through his ministry there in Bogota this past week, that uh, souls were brought into the kingdom, uh, lives have been transformed. So continue to use him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and, and Ken, we are glad to have uh, you back from Chad. We, we heard uh, a few little stories, and uh, there'll be plenty more stories to come uh, when... Bishop Ron gets back. Uh, he'll be, supposedly, he'll be back next Sunday. And uh, so be in prayer for him. This is the third Sunday after Epiphany. And as all good Anglicans, we know that this is the season of Epiphany, which every Sunday, it gives us a little idea and a, of, of, of uh, who Jesus is and why, what he came to do. And in this particular Sunday, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It is the first of what John calls signs. Signs that would uh, tell us something about Jesus. In the last part of his gospel, John writes this in chapter 20 and verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you might have life through his name. And then a chapter later, as he closes out his gospel, he said that Jesus did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the books that would be, that would be written. Now, John calls, it, John calls these seven miracles, he calls them signs. And we know what a sign is. A sign is not the final destination, but a sign points us in a direction. So when you're driving down 39th Avenue, you see a sign that says St. Andrew's Church. But you know that that sign's not St. Andrew's Church. It is directing us, and we don't have any arrows. I don't think there's an arrow on the, on the church sign. I should have looked this morning. But, uh, but, but we know that it's in the vicinity, so we'll look around and we'll see the, a building back here. And if there was a St. Andrew's sign on the building, it would say St. Andrew's Church, but we know that that building or this building is not the church, but we know that the church would be gathering here, that this is the church. So a sign will always point to something different. It points us in a different direction. And when John says that out of all the signs and miracles that Jesus did, and, and remember, this is some 30, 40 years after, he, uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven. John had all of these, these, uh, all this time to think about the miracles and the experiences that he had with Jesus. And he came down and decided that these are the seven signs that would help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. He is God Himself. And so he begins in John chapter 2 of this first miracle, this first uh, uh, sign that he says is a doorway to help us to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it happens at a wedding. Of all places, John says that we're going to find out something very important about Jesus being the Messiah and why he came to earth and what his purpose was at a wedding. Now, I, I, as a as a Baptist pastor for 29 years, I had this love-hate relationship with weddings. I'm just going to be honest. You know, I, I've heard Bishop Ron talk about how wonderful weddings are. And how like, I'm just going to be honest. I, I'm old enough now I can be honest, I guess. But, uh, but, he, but, but there's this love-hate relationship. I, I hate, I guess hate's too strong a word. There was a, a, a minus uh, sign to some experiences at weddings. I, uh, I didn't like rehearsals on Friday night, usually Friday night, you know, I've been out visiting people all week and getting ready for Sunday, and I had things, you know, Friday night was, was, was my night and the family's night, but you had to go down to the church and you had a rehearsal. So there was rehearsal, uh, there were mothers of the bride, uh, there were wedding coordinators, and then there were mothers of the bride. And uh, uh, there uh, was total confusion, trying to get all this stuff all you know, straightened out and everything. And then there were mothers of the bride. And I, I'm not saying that every single mother of the bride was bad and terrible. Yeah, I could say that. No, I, I, uh, but there were, there were a few. There was, uh, there was one mother of the bride who just 
drove me crazy. I just knew that this was going to be a disaster. But she, you know, just took over everything. They hired a wedding coordinator, and she would just basically said, just sit down, you know. And, and it all became about her. This was her daughter getting married, but it was all about her. And so the day of the, the wedding, when the mother of the bride walked down the aisle, she would stop at every aisle. She went, hey. And she was smiling. She would say, oh, good to see you. And the whole thing revolved. She even had to stand through the whole wedding so everybody could see her. And so that was one of the reasons I hated weddings. I, I didn't hate weddings. I, it, it was mothers of the bride. And there was only just a few, uh, a few of those. But on the plus side, I did enjoy uh, the weddings and seeing uh, especially young couples and then those that I... Uh, I married that were uh, on up in years, but it was the joy, the joy of the day, the joy of, of, of seeing these two lovebirds unite and, and, uh, and or starting their life together. That was, uh, that was beautiful. I enjoyed that. Uh, I, I still enjoy that. But I also remember that uh, I enjoyed the mistakes during the wedding. You know, that you can't have a perfect wedding. You shouldn't have a perfect wedding. I know... I know the brides love perfect weddings. The guys, we could care less, you know. But uh, um, I enjoyed the mistakes, the drop rings, the people fainting. Uh, uh, those were, <laughs> that, was, that was a lot of fun. I had one wedding where um, they had a, a prayer, a kneeling altar. And, uh, and so I said a prayer over the bride and the groom. Uh, and so when they stood up, there was a lot of, uh, it was very ornate and, you know, col- little columns and, and it was just a lot of stuff happening here on this prayer altar. When, when the bride stood up, her, her beautiful dress, who she just, she just loved this dress. I've never seen a, a bride that was so proud of her wedding dress, but she just went on and on about her wedding dress. She got, it got wrapped around one of these little things here. And so I, she can't stand up. And so I'm, I'm down there, and I'm trying to get it, and I'm doing everything that I can. And, uh, and she's trying to move things around. And, and the groom, he reaches over. He's trying to be very gentle and take care of this. And nothing is working. And finally, the groom just reaches over and goes, just rips this dress, you know. All, you know and and I'm, I'm, I'm going, what, are you kidding? What are you? And... Uh, and so that was, uh, that was the beginning of a very rocky marriage for, these, uh, for this couple. And, uh, and so those kind of things I, I enjoyed. And uh, um, Okay. <laughs> um, now, one thing I also enjoyed being a Baptist pastor in weddings was the reception. And I know Baptist receptions are are terrible. Nothing but cake and punch. Uh, and but 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 I just want you to know that I enjoy I enjoy cake, and so I, I just <laughs> I don't the world doesn't have enough cake, and so I, I I would get two or three pieces of wedding cake because I just enjoyed it and didn't like the punch too much, and you know as a a, a, a father of of the bride uh, of two girls that got married in a Baptist church. It was a very cheap wedding. And, uh, and so uh, if I ever had to do that again, it wouldn't be an Anglican wedding where you have to buy booze for everybody. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it would be a strictly Baptist wedding with, with cake, and, cake and punch. And, 
let me throw this out too. I, I have uh, I preached one time that I can remember uh, as a Free Will Baptist pastor on the Winnie of Cana. It's kind of tough to preach this in a Baptist church. Uh, you kind of shy away from it because you have to turn wine into grape juice, which is another miracle. And, uh, <laughs> well, and not, water, not water into wine. So, uh, so as an Anglican, it's very, very easy uh, to do. But we do know this, that in Jewish weddings, they, they were wild. Uh, they were loud, uh, boisterous. Everyone had a good time, and there was plenty of wine. There was always a lot of wine. Uh, uh, one of the rabbi's favorite saying is that uh, without wine, there is no joy in life. And so uh, uh, in this particular case that we're going to read this morning, that, that, that is true. That uh, there, these wild, extravagant, exciting, and joyful um, uh, wedding receptions uh, w- was something to behold. And in Jesus' day, they weren't just a couple hours of, after the wedding of reception. These receptions, these celebrations went on for an entire week. Now, I know we just kind of, well, you know, they ran out of wine and that was no big deal. To me, when, uh, if they were running out of wine, I would have said, well, it's time for everybody to go home anyway. And uh, they don't need to be hanging around. But I found out something this past week that I had, was not aware of. But in Jesus' day, when these Jewish celebrations, wedding celebrations, uh, that would last a week, uh, the groom, it was his responsibility to make sure that there was enough food and wine that would last the whole week. And if the wedding celebration suddenly, suddenly became a... Baptist wedding celebration, that was bad news for them. Because in the Mishnah, or the oral tradition, it was laid out that the gifts that were given to the bride and groom were not legally theirs. They were kind of on a loan until after the reception. And if you had a Baptist reception, you could ask for your gift back. Uh, it was took a court of law. You had to go back to court, but... Uh, uh, you had to go to court in order to get a judgment saying that you could get your, uh, uh, your spoons back or whatever. But uh, it, was, uh, it was just this matter of fact that you could not take possession of those gifts if you had a bad wedding celebration. Because the wedding celebration was really one of the tests of character in Jewish life. If you ran out of food, if you ran out of wine during these wedding celebrations, then it meant that you were a person of low character, that you were not a, a, a well, a, you, you could not uh, plan well, that there was some defect in your life that caused you to, to be uh, uh, tight with your money and, and not being given, uh, not being very giving. Uh, individual, and so this wonderful day, this wedding day, that was the uh, best day of their marriage, uh, could suddenly become the worst day in their life because it was a stigma that would last for the as long as they lived in that community. It would be something that would be hung over their head for the rest of their lives. And so this just, was just, this just isn't something that was overlooked or a little mistake that the groom made by not buying enough food or wine. This was something major. And so when Jesus' mother said to him, 
they have no wine. She wanted to spare this young couple the shame and the disgrace that would come their way because they had run out of wine. And what Mary, the mother of Jesus, was saying is, you fix the problem. This is your doing. You must fix the problem. And what was Jesus' response in verse 4? Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What Jesus was basically saying to his mother is, it's not your problem, it's not my problem. It's their problem. I know some would look at this uh, term woman and, and, and it, as if Jesus was rebuking his mother. Uh, that's a, a long way from the truth. That uh, term mother, or that term woman, actually means lady or madam. It can even be used as mother. Jesus would use it again as he is dying on the cross. He'll say, woman, behold your son. But what he was saying is, mom, woman, madam, lady, you're not my mother in this situation. You have been my mother for 30 years, but you're not my mother any longer in this kind of situation. I'm not going to follow your timeline. I'm not going to do something just because you are forcing me to do it and I'm, and I'm your son. I'm on a different timeline. I'm on a different way of, of doing things. That Out of not disrespect to his mother, but he was saying, Mom, you just don't understand the situation that you're facing right now. It's true, you don't want embarrassment. You don't want shame brought upon this couple. But yet, I can't do and I'm not going to do what you want me to do in the way that you want me to do it. She was, in a sense, it seems, trying to force Jesus' hand. She, had, she was there at the virgin birth. You know, it was her. The New Testament says that she pondered all of these things. She knew what was going on. She knew that He was the promised Messiah. And just three days before this, He had been baptized. The voice of God had said, this is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. She knew all of this. She heard all of this. And in her mind, what a perfect place to say, I'm the Messiah. Here I am. I changed water. I turned water into wine. Look at me. This is what I come to do. To be your Messiah. But Jesus said, it isn't the time. It isn't the hour. It's not the time for My glory. Jesus would say it again in John 7. This is not My hour. This is not the hour. But we find in John 12, on the day on, on, on Palm Sunday, as He is riding into the, to Jerusalem, He says that, this is the day. This my hour has come, that the Son of Man will be glorified. And so, what John, uh, Jesus is saying to, to his mother Mary is that, Mom, I, I love you, but but I can't do what you want me to do. I'm not going to announce who I am. The way you want me to do it. Now, let me just go off the rails here for just a minute. Let me ask you this question. Mary says they have no wine. They have no wine. She wanted to save them, this young couple, from their shame and, and embarrassment uh, that would follow them for the rest of their lives. But let me ask you this. Could you say this morning, I have no wine? It's not that you don't have any wine back at the house. 
But in your heart, in your life, could you say, would you say this morning, I have no wine? I know we don't talk that way. But you might say, I have no hope. Or you might say, I'm carrying a lot of shame. Perhaps this morning there are some things that you're hiding from a spouse, you're hiding from your friends because you don't want them to know what kind of person you are. You're embarrassed, you're ashamed of what you've done, something in the past. And, and you look in your heart this morning and, and to save yourself the embarrassment, but you know down deep inside, it's all there. You don't want the shame, you don't want the pain, you don't want the disappointments that you have in yourself. You would have to say, I have no wine. And I don't want it fixed. I need something to happen in my life, in my heart, that would give me wine. And we search and we long and we, we need that assurance that something can be done. We want that situation in our life fixed. We don't know how to do it, but we have no wine. Continuing on with the story. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course, being the mother that she was and being the mothers that most of, most of you are. Uh, I found out from experience from my mother that mothers like to have the last word. You know, no matter what, they're going to get the last word. And we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, getting the last word. She turns to the servants after her son just says, this isn't my hour. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he wants, whatever he says, you do it. And I guess she walks off, as most mothers do. <laughs> whatever he does, whatever he wants, whatever he says, you do it. And so here's Jesus' reaction to that request from his mom, they have, or that statement from his mom, they have no wine. John draws our attention to some house furnishings. In verse 6, he says that there were six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And I'll let you figure out the two or three firkins apiece because I know that's what you like to do. And, and anyway, I'm not, into, I'm not into numbers, you know, there are, there are those who uh, can figure out Bible numbers and, and they're in the numerology. I just, I, I, uh, not only I don't get numbers in the Bible, I don't get numbers in math and uh, uh, trying to figure out how much money's in the bank or anything like that. That's just, they're numbers, just numbers. But in this case, John, John points out that there are six stone water pots. Now, we know that uh, in numerology, in, in Jewish thought, that seven is a uh, number of perfection. It is complete. But six is the number of incompletion, of being defective. And John wants our attention brought to these six stone water pots. Why? Because they represented the Jewish law. The law the Jews had to live under in order to be good people, to be righteous people. And in their thought and in their teaching and their religious training, if you are to be a good religious individual, a good religious person, 
then you had to cleanse, you had to clean your hands. And so before every single meal, you would take water, or water would be taken from the, the water pot and would be uh, poured over your hands and your hands would be cleansed, they would be clean. They would be clean for just a moment. But then throughout the meal, when the different courses would arrive on the table, you had to ceremonially, ceremonially cleanse your hands once again. So you did it throughout the meal, and then at the conclusion of the meal, you would have your hands cleansed again because that was the law. That was religion. That is what you had to follow. And John wants us to, to get, that, get that in our mind because it was a requirement to be good Jewish religious people. You had to wash your hands. And it had to be a very religious, solemn moment when your hands were being cleansed. But they only cleansed. Your hands were only cleansed for a moment. Well, Jesus tells the, the servants to fill the six religious ceremonially ceremony I can't say that word ceremonially used water pots fill them with water and so they did they filled it up to the brim nothing else could be put in they were right to the top and then Jesus said dip out a cup of wine and take it to the master of ceremonies to the to the wedding coordinator now, when did Jesus turn water into wine? Because, you know, we all believe Jesus had to touch you or we had to say the magic words or whatever. Jesus didn't say a word. He didn't grab hold of the six water pots and jiggle them around and say, you know, turn, turn into wine. He didn't do any of that. But what happened in that moment, it's a miraculous moment, what went in was water, what came out was wine. Out of these religiously symbolic water pots that people had used for hundreds and hundreds of years to, to prove that they were good and wonderful people, now they were no longer filled with water. The water was gone. But it's filled with wine. Water to wine. And as we'll read in just a moment, this just wasn't this wasn't Thunderbird or Mad Dog or Two Buck Chuck wine. You know, I don't have Thunderbird or Mad Dog, but I, I think there's some Two Buck Chuck in my house <laughs> for other people. <laughs> um, this wasn't the cheap stuff. But what the master of ceremony said was that this is, he never tasted anything like this. This was the wine of heaven. This was the wine that if it had a brand name that I wouldn't be able to pronounce. This was the best stuff that you could ever imagine. This was the wine that had been touched in some way by God and given for His people. Verse 10, every man, is, uh, weddings, uh, the wedding coordinator said to, to the groom, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have become drunk or, been well, or have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now this is what John wants us to see. That when Jesus came, 
as the Messiah, as the Son of God, that Jesus was always going to do the unexpected. You were never going to be able to figure out Jesus exactly the way you wanted to figure him out. Jesus would do the unexpected. And how John gets our attention to that is this just one little detail he, he makes at the beginning of uh, this wedding incident, this wedding event. John drops in this little detail on the third day. Now, you could count back and say, well, it's probably three days after the baptism of Jesus. But we have the benefit of uh, thousands of years of commentaries and, and uh, of us reading, and we've read the book of John, we, uh, the, the, the Gospel of John, we've read all of these things. We know what the third day means. John is saying this is where it's all headed to. It's all headed to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Don't ever get that out of your mind, that everything that you read about Jesus, everything, every sign that you'll, you'll read in the book of John about Jesus, it all leads to the third day. It all leads to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these six stone water pots that contained somewhere between 150 and 180 gallons of now wine from heaven is a very stark reminder of what John wanted us to see. That we might be able to go through all of these religious experiences and do all the religious things that we think that are necessary or we're told that is necessary, but we will not find our lives changed. We'll still carry the shame. We'll still carry the guilt. We still are under the burden and weight of life. That the ceremonial cleansing will not cleanse us. It will cleanse the outside. But it is the wine. It is that fresh wine. The wine from heaven. That the wedding party and the guest throughout the week would be able to taste and would be able to receive. Jesus was not just fixing a problem. But in that moment, He was restoring just as He came to restore you and me, just as He came to restore and redeem this world, to restore it to what it once was, He was restoring what was once was at the beginning of this wedding where everyone would be able to have enough wine to drink. He was restoring. Never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ didn't come to fix your life. He didn't come to fill up your little tiny wine cup and, and be done with you. But He came to restore your life. He came to change the water in your life to the wine from heaven. That's what He came to do. In the Old Testament, when the Messiah comes, Isaiah says this. In Isaiah 25.6, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast to all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet of clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And again, in Psalms 104, we read that, the, that He would cause the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man, that He may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to wash their face so they could shine and the bread that would strengthen man's heart. The good news is that Jesus didn't come to fix us. He came to restore us.
What he does and what he gives to us is more than enough to gladden our heart. What he gives and what he came to do is enough and more than enough that we can be able to say that we know that we have tasted the Lord and that he is good. God's grace is that never-ending supply of wine from heaven that is new every, new every single morning has been given to us. This is God's vintage wine. John wants us to see that it's poured out for you and I as he died on the cross and shed his blood for us. Not that we would believe in Jesus and have a new set of rules to follow, but that we would have life and have it more abundantly. Not just to clean the outside, that people could see that we're just wonderful, good, religious people. But this wine was given to us, this grace was given to us to cleanse the inside. Everything that was necessary to remove the shame, to remove the guilt, to remove the hopelessness has been given to us in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're so all un- and we're so undeserving. And when I think about how undeserving we are, I think about those in that wedding party in that in that uh, wedding celebration that week who were undeserving to have heaven's finest wine. And yet it was given to them freely. Every Sunday when we come to this church, every Sunday we will say this prayer that we'll say in just a few moments. That we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold grace and mercy. We understand that what we are about to partake of in the bread and the wine is in a very special and wonderful way the body and blood of Christ. And once again, we will taste the wine from heaven. And once again, we will understand that Jesus Christ died. The reason He came was to die for us and to cover our sins with His blood with the wine from heaven. John wants us to realize too that this wasn't a one-time event. This wasn't an event that that was only going to happen there, but John wants us to know that this is something that happens time and time and time again. That when Jesus Christ enters into your life, He turns the water of your life into wine. Something precious, something wonderful, something good tasting. He changes your life. And so the miracle, the sign that John wants us to see is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago, but it happens to you and it's happened to me. Not that my life is perfect and not that any of us never have any more problems, but we do know this, that we have been given the undeserving wine of Jesus Christ. Because He loves us. That's what He came to do. Not to change us, not to fix us, but to transform us, to restore us to where we need to be. Let us pray.
Father, I pray today that not only will we read and hear the story of the wedding, wedding at Cana of Galilee, and how this wonderful miracle took place of water being changed and turned into wine, but that we may allow You, we may allow You today to change our life, to transform our lives, to restore our lives by taking the water that is there and turning it into wine. Father, we need You. Remove the guilt, the shame, the hurt, the disappointments, the burdens that we carry. May they all today be covered by the wine of the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we experience the abundant life, the life that is a restored life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.